1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
2: R.C. Carter is the owner of Carter Country Meats, a regenerative beef production company out of the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, as as he puts it. And I got to know R.C. through a mutual friend, Jack Carr, and started watching him and listening to him about his philosophy and views around regenerative agriculture. And naturally, there is a beautiful blend between regenerative agriculture and who hunters are in terms of the stewards of the land, uh, sustainable use, consumptive use, all of those great terms. So I wanted to have R.C. on, I to have an, a good conversation. He knows his subject, he's passionate about his cows and regenerative agriculture, and he's passionate about hunting. So, enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting.
3: It brings awareness to to non-hunters
2: feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter so if you were a um someone i was trying to date
1: it would have been like man you were you know
3: hard to get
2: you play a hard to get game, RC.
3: It's like the, 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 and, and it's not intentional. That's just kind of our, our circumstance. People really take for granted like just consistent self cell reception and Wi Fi. <laughs> like, I mean, even if we're driving somewhere, you're like, hey, I'm going to have some road miles, you know, but you're like every 15 minutes, you're like going through a five minute dead zone and, uh, and it's but it's kinda nice too. Mm-hmm. Then we gotta keep it in perspective, you know? Kind of nice.
2: Yeah, it's um I don't know, man. It's like it's almost like I want to yeah. I hate my phone and I love my phone, right? I hate my phone that I wish I could disconnect from it. I wish that I could just leave it alone. I've tried in the past to do like phone free Sundays, and I'm gonna try it again, I think. But then when I know that, you know. There's that moment where you're like, "Oh shit, where's my phone?" and that anxiety pulse that goes through your body. Yeah, that's real. You're like, "Damn."
3: Yeah, that that's that's as real as it gets and it's like, real you, or you re- when you really do lose your phone, there's like that the the crazy anxiety and then when you finally accept like phone's gone, like it's not coming online today and where we're at, it's like we're not we're not like we're not going to a store to get another one. Like you've got a, there's a three, you're three to four days without a phone and it, it, it's awesome. And this so, so the same thing happens. Like if you go on like some backcountry, you know, hunting trip, you're just like, except there's no phone. And then you hit this like different vibration. You hit this different frequency where you're just like back to normal. And you're like, this is awesome. And then, when that son of a bitch shows back up, <clears> and you're like, power it up, and then it just starts bing, 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 and you're like, you, it's like, it's kind of like getting hit in the head with a ball peen hammer. You're like, oh, I don't think we're built to do it. I really, I really don't. I mean, I participate. We've got social media, and uh, you know, all we we have all the stuff all the all the things going on in the digital world but i don't like it uh i know it sure doesn't help me you know hmm. as far as
2: in the bit what do you mean it doesn't help you it helps you in the business no
3: in the business sense it does but as far as uh well i shouldn't say 100 percent. like i really love to get like i like to get on instagram and just like the inspirational cult quote, uh quotes like Epictetus like dude, these these old like Roman philosophers, like dang, they they had it pinned down, you know, a couple thousand years ago, and and that kind of stuff is really gay. So I I I have a love-hate relationship with it also. Kind of a feast or famine type of deal. So yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, RC it finally welcome to the blood origins podcast
3: thank thank you robbie it's a pleasure to be on here man i'm, I'm stoked
2: um we were talking earlier 79 degrees in memphis today nice humidity happening outside single digits where you're
3: yeah i think we, we were around nine degrees this morning and we in winter it's snow <laughs> of course <again>. it's
2: winter <laughs> single digits
3: we have we have a uh, snow on top of mud, on top of snow that's on top of mud. So it's a, it's really great though. We love it because it's we're typically a pretty arid area. So anytime we can get some moisture, it's it's a real blessing, you know, um, because that we know that's that's what's going to make the grass grow, and that's that's the resource out here that we really depend upon. So
2: R.C., give people an introduction to who you are, what you do.
3: Yeah, so I'm a third generation out here in uh, nowhere, Wyoming, north central part of Wyoming. Um, been doing it as my whole life, and my family has, and my my wife and her family. So kind of born into it, you know. And I guess we we were doing that, um, and then kind of got into the meat business. You know, we were raising animals as ranchers, but. Uh, you don't really think of a cow as, you know, a top sirloin and eye around and ribeyes and all those different cuts of meat, um, but we we kind of, we got into the meat game and um, now we have a direct consumer business and really, really into regenerative agriculture and just kind of pushing the envelope as far as, you know, what we're doing in terms of uh, nutrition, regenerative agriculture. Just experimenting. I mean, we're I'm, I'm just curious. Like I like to figure stuff out. I get bored easy, you know, and I'm and I, I like to go. So it's like let's try let's try some stuff, mm-hmm. you know. I really believe in nature, you know, as is in this crazy, crazy world where we can't tell what up and down looks like anymore and who's telling the truth. Like, nature doesn't lie, man. Like, bears have sharp teeth um you can freeze to death you can get fright like nature just doesn't lie and she's a bitch um, right
2: sometimes
3: he can be man the sun can be warm or it can just make your skin bubble too you know it's 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 awesome but that's what we look to is you know look look that direction in terms of you know we're all questioning what the hell we're doing here and there's a lot of answers in that you know so yeah, just just another just a a rancher doing doing what we can, you know, to contribute to society as a whole. RC, it out as well.
2: you um, you say you're in the meat business. Do you have like the whole processing plant, all of that, like down pad, or you guys? How how does that work?
3: No, we currently we have we go to a USDA processing plant to process process our animals. Because the way it works is, you could we could use. If I wanted to process the animal in my garage or uh, hanging under a cottonwood tree, I could do that, but you can't resell it. Or the next step up is you could go to a state inspected processor, um, but then you can't go across the state line with it. So we go USDA because we we currently um, sell our meat all across the United States to all all the states. So we go with the USDA plant. Um, Really great people in Northern Colorado. And then we distribute out of uh, out of Denver because that's a lot easier for FedEx to get a hold of. And my nephew he runs he runs our warehouse down there. So we, there's a there's a grand total of of four of us involved in uh, in the company, or five of us. I and not discount uh, my family and my team, but yeah, we just slinging slinging beef across the United States at this point. Or trying to anyway. And the company is called Carter Country Meats.
2: Carter Country Meats. And that's what I heard about. uh, I heard about you for the first time through Jack Carr, a mutual friend of ours. And started listening to you and started thinking about, you know, obviously there's a a superblative, superblative, a superb um, connection between what you guys do in the regenerative agriculture space
1: and why people hunt.
2: For sure? You raised a hunter, RC?
3: Yeah, I've been I've been a hunter my whole life. We were we were hunting before hunting was cool. It seems like <laughs> you know, my grandpa and uh yeah, man, I just I remember as a kid we'd go out and so there was like we didn't have like big walk-in freezers. But the old man, he would always, he'd kill an elk like right before it got really cold out. And so we'd always leave the an elk or maybe two of them hanging in the shop, you know, for all winter long. Oh, really? you, know? and you just, I, oh yeah. And that was like, it's actually the best way it's the best elk is like these dry, dry aged elk, mm. you know, like typically the hind quarters on an elk are pretty tough. Yep. And and i'm I'm like don't get me wrong like elk burgers good but elk steaks are awesome Mm -hmm. and so if i i prefer to have as many steaks as i possibly can and so i got to where i would take an elk just because of learning from what my dad my grandpa were doing is i would take an elk and i'll hang it i'll hang the the hindquarters for i don't know 35 days what's happening
2: in that process rc for those that don't know like why do people even dry age stuff?
3: Yeah, so it's it's interesting, you know, you have all these naturally occurring enzymes and bacteria um that reside within the muscles and when you when you when you dry age, that's basically controlling your temperature and your humidity to control the degradation of the those muscles. And, and it's really allowing those enzymes to break down the connective tissue and the collagen, the, the parts of the meat that are tough um, within that animal. And so it does two things: it adds, it, one, it, it tenderizes the meat, mm. so you can take a top round, butterfly it, and you can turn it into a steak that's you know pretty dang good on your grill. Mm-hmm. And then it also it allows a lot of moisture to de, basically dehydrate out of those muscles. And it um condenses the flavor, so it makes for a more powerful, more powerfully flavored steak. And uh, I remember we I mean we'd leave them outside for too long, and they'd freeze. So we'd go out with a hatchet, you know, and we were just little booger-eating kids, and like you know, whittling a piece of backstrap off of a off of this old old elk that's hanging in the freezer, you know. So it's uh, but that you know that's the way it's been done. You know, that's, we were, we were eating meat way before this stuff was coming wrapped in cellophane and, you know, there's a whole, there was a whole different approach to it and we've forgotten so much right? Uh, about, you know, we're just so fat and comfortable and complacent these days. Um, you know, we, when we initially started out, you know, we we're working with this really amazing butcher, his name's Nate Singer and we were really into the dry aging and wanting to talk about the different types of molds that we were dry aging these animals with. And so we started sending out boxes of meat and people would get it. And we're, so we're, we're sending meat frozen and they'd say, Hey, this, our meat is, it's hard. Like what's going on? We're like, yeah, it's frozen. And they obviously like, they have no idea. And so they say, well, what's wrong with it? And we're like, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with it. But that to me, it was such a uh, just an eye opener that like we're wanting to talk about the different molds because we're very far along in our education. But a lot of people, they don't even know how to thaw out properly thaw out frozen meat, you know, and we're like, shit, it really like we've got a long road to hoe um, in terms of educating people, you know, and just getting people. Technology is great, but we also, we have a real, uh, you know, we, we've, there was a lot of tried and true methods that are really perfected of these old ways of doing things that we've just kind of forsaken. And I think it's important to kind of reconnect with that a little bit.
2: What, what is, is there a, a, a proper way to thaw meat?
3: Yeah, you shouldn't really, you really shouldn't just take like something from frozen. I mean, I, we do it with hamburger all the time. You know, just take some hamburger and put it in some hot water, but really, like with a very high-end steak, you should you sh- it should be low and slow. You know, cook them low and slow, thaw low and slow. So we just set it in the refrigerator for, you know, two to three days and let it just kind of slack out. Have you
2: ever been to you? You said a, a an amazing word. Have you ever been to South Africa or Africa, RC? I
3: haven't. No.
2: So the best term of art in South Africa is proper. And you say, man, that's a proper buffalo.
1: You
2: know, yeah. that's a proper piece of steak. That's a proper whatever you want to call it. Proper is just a great adjective for things. Um, what, what caused you, why did you start in the regenerative business? Like, what, what led you down that road? Because it's not, a, it's not an easy road to plow.
3: No, it's definitely the uphill um but that's kind of the way we've always we've always done everything never really agreed with a lot. I mean, I was like the kid in school that I was always in trouble for asking why. Mm. You know, they say, "Hey, don't do that." And you're like, "Well, why?" You know, but you know when you're 10 years old, you you only have so much life experience, you know, and that's really what we're doing is like You go out in the world, you have experiences, and you you know. So then, when somebody tells you something, or you see something, or you experience something, you you filter it through your life. Uh, you you have your you have a bullshit meter, right? So now you're like you filter it through, and then it comes back. You're like, nah, it doesn't really add up. And so when when I got out of college in two, I graduated in two thousand and one and i came back to the ranch and i i started you know doing improvements and dedicating myself to it we eventually we got to a place where you know the next move was you know to plant corn and you know d- just kind of go along with what everybody else the the not everybody but the majority was mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. and i i don't like tractors i you know i do but i do, i'd rather be dipped in cow shit than you know covered in hydraulic fluid or i don't Necessarily love turning wrenches <laughs> or sitting on this in a tractor for 17 hours. So I started educating myself and reading books on, you know, kind of these old school guys, Joel soliton Alan Savory. Um, he, Alan Savory was huge in yeah, Zimbabwe.
2: Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And, and, and just like all of a sudden, there's like come to find out, you know, I'd been to college for four years and everybody's talking about like nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. But there's like zero, there was zero conversation about biology and ecology of the soil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you, so you learn, but you're like, whoa, that, but it resonates, you know, when, when, when somebody talks about that stuff and how much, you know, how soil works, um, without human intervention and like what healthy soil looks like, it just clicks because it's logical, right? Because truth resonates on a certain frequency so even if you don't know anything about it you're like well that kind of makes sense mm-hmm. just because that's the way that the, it works so i just kind of you know out of my resistance to um my resistance to sit in tractors and buy chemicals i just kind of went the other way and really it was a lot of it is just maybe out of just wanting to be lazy like they say if if you're intelligent not that i'm any smarter than anybody else but give a give a smart person a hard job and they'll figure an easy way to do it because they want to you know they want to be they're lazy you don't want to work so hard so in the ranching industry i'd had so many of these problems that you just you know every year it's the same problem same problem and you just fight your way through it or you step back and get a 10,000 foot view and you're like why is this problem persisting maybe we should change our management strategy or the the approach here, and so when we kind of got into uh, regenerative agriculture, um, I'll tell you what anybody that's interested in it, especially with cattle, they should check out um, Dr. Alan Williams and Understanding Ag, uh, Alejandro Carrillo. Those I've had the pleasure of meeting both of those guys, but they're they're awesome. I mean, mm-hmm. they, there's people been doing this for forty years, you know, mainstream. But now it's just all of a sudden, it's just like starting to be kind of like, it's got a term.
2: niche, right? It's nouveau, right? Everyone's loving it.
3: Is it regenerative? Like, well, of course it is. Do you have a label to prove it?
2: And Well, what does that mean, R.C.? Give us a definition for those who are like, shit, Robbie, I don't even know what regenerative agriculture means.
3: Man, I always struggle with that one. I should research it more. Understanding ag's got a really great definition. To me, though, it just means... You know, trying, trying to operate more in symbiosis with nature, trying to find some sort of an equilibrium with with nature and flow with it versus fight and force, 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 because that's what commodity agriculture is. It's like, I mean, they've just taken this. I don't it's just weird to me. Like, how can we produce food? And the whole approach to commodity agriculture is producing food. That is all very, very uniform, monocrops. You want all the animals to be the same exact size, the same shape, so Mm -hmm. that the ribeye is the same size and it fits in the same box. And the whole approach is by, is killing stuff. I mean, it's like commercial pesticides and herbicides. It's just like, it's a, it's a freaking, they, it just kills. It's a
2: biological desert apart from the monocrop.
3: Apart from that. And so to me, I look at it and I'm like that it's so unsustainable. Mm. We're either going to need to deal with this now or, but eventually we're going to have to deal with it. It does not work. Like you cannot just continue to kill off all the biology in our soil. When you learn that like your gut biome, like your stomach, um, that's what keeps you healthy. And, that there's actually there there's more bacteria and viruses in your body than there are human cells. Like hmm. we're more not human than we are human. And <laughs> our whole food system is designed to kill all of that stuff and it's just like, you know, if you haven't been raised in that way, it's just like, what? Like where the how is this why are we not talking about this? Cuz at the end of the day Like if you're healthy, it's proven that if you are, if you're eating high nutrient dense foods, you're going to be operating so much closer to your optimum and nutrient dense foods increases brain cognition. And so I think that's really interesting, right? It's like, you know, we all have problems, you know, it's like, ah, the garbage bag ripped or, uh, you know, the, the UPS man got bit by the dog or whatever the problem is. You know, my kids aren't listening to me. But if you're eating healthier foods, you have more clarity of your mind. It's easier to solve the food, solve your problems. So it's like, what's the cost of like, what's the real cost of all this processed food that like humanity is consuming? I I read something that 73% of Americans diet is ultra processed foods. And makes sense. it's the, I think that I really think that's that's a, a big problem. Uh, and, and basically, the result of what we're seeing in our society today is just lack of nutrition, and we don't even know it.
2: What are you seeing, RC? I know you've done a lot of research in this. What are you seeing as, as you go along this sort of regenerative path, this regenerative journey? Obviously, you're in and you're out you're getting better at it. The animals are feeling more in tune with the environment. The environment feels more in tune with the animals. Are you seeing changes in the quality of the meat, in the, in the quality of the habitat?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if we, I could say we're seeing a, a change in the quality of the meat. Um, It sure tastes good. You know, I feel like the one place that you could be in the meat is like uh cortisol levels you know this is a really interesting. super
2: low cortisol levels
3: yeah so cortisol is basically you know stress. that's the stress hormone so if animals are very stressed out like you're basically you're eating stress like that cheap ribeye like you're eating stress like to me that really that that that's really sucks um To even think that you could be adding to your own stress levels just with the food you're eating, so with the meat, um, I'm sure it's there. We haven't quantitated that, but I know with the soil, and we've got to do better. But with the soil, one hundred percent. I mean, we can, we can see. Do you know what your
2: organic matter is? How it's changed over time?
3: I I mean, we have we've got the we've got the data. This is so this year we're just really getting into it. And I've realized that it's like, we have to have the, the best data out there. And so we've hired a group, um, really awesome individuals, um, Ryan White, who was kinda, he was kinda trained by a good friend of mine, Charlie Orchard from up here. Um, he had a company called Land EKG. But those, those folks, they, that this is their business is their scientists and they go out and they quantitate the the data. And I'm like, I mean, I talk about it, but I'm not, let's, I'm a cow guy. Like I I can kind of sound semi-articulate about it and, you know, fake, fake it till I make it, but that's what they do. So we're going to go out and gather the data, um, this spring in fact like less than a month so we're starting I'm starting to get anxiety already and cuz we're not prepared but we're going to take the cows out and we're basically trying to recreate the scenario of um basically what the bison were doing you know when this country was 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 covered up with bison and try to improve improve it because you know there was a a study that was recently um, produced by the Bureau of Land Management here in the United States. And it's, they basically state, it's a 40 year study that basically states that we're all of our public land, I think 25 million acres of the public land is severely degraded. (laughs) Um, and it makes sense to me. I mean, I see it when I, and and now that like, I'm looking for it and I talking to people and I'm talking to these old timers and. I say, hey, what was this? What what did it used to be like out here? And it's 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 noticeably different within the last ten years. You know, as far as like you used to be able to ride cross country and in the bottom of the we call them gullies. People call them draws, gullies, arroyals, whatever. But in the bottom, you used to be able to go across them, and now there's these like in they call it in size, uh, mm-hmm. drain. Or what have you, but it's just like big erosion cliff. Yeah. Yes. And it's so now when we have a big rain event, the water just runs hard and fast. There's no like there's no turns in it to slow it down. So the faster it's moving, the more sediment we're moving down country. And it's like, that's a bad thing. Hmm. Um and to me it really it really I mean, it makes sense, you know. Uh I've been a cow guy my whole life, but when we first started grazing animals like that um in a high intensity low time duration strategy, it felt right, you know, and that's I'm like more of a feel guy you know that's what the some of the best hunters they're not like looking at the moon and you know doing the calculation they're you just you're out and you feel it right you just like you just intuitively you tap into nature and you know what direction to go and uh and that's so that's kind of where we get our um direction, but it's it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, just kind of like a short history lesson is I I feel like we're in the Bighorn Basin area of Wyoming, and they they claim that like around the 1870s is when the the last of the bison were shot out of this country. Okay, mm-hmm. and so we look back in time and. We say, well, what did what was it what what did it used to be like here before the the beaver were trapped out and the bison were um you know eradicated? So the closest thing we have to that is basically like trappers' journals, you know. So some trapper climbed to the type yeah. of to the top of a Gannett peak and was like looks out and was like, this is what I saw, and he writes down, you know. So he writes in his journal. So we can kind of look back that and get an idea. And they, they claim that there used to be between four and six million bison would come through this Bighorn Basin area every single year. And one year they would go to the west. The next year they'd stay in the middle. The next year they'd go to the east. Maybe they didn't come back. But what would happen, so with the, with the bison, it was a high intensity, low time duration grazing pattern. So there was this massive herd, uh, and people who've ever studied any history about the American West, you know, they talk about the railroad, and it it the railroad the railroad would have to stop because uh or the train would have to stop because it would take two and a half days for the this one single herd of bison to cross over, and so these animals are just like shoulder to shoulder in competition. And you you know, and they stayed in a group because if you were by yourself, like something would eat you. Mm-hmm. like it's not a good place to be. Mm-hmm. So the bison were eradicated. So we have to agree upon, you know that at that point in time, before European encroachment, you know, eradicated and changed the the landscape out here, you know, there was an equilibrium. Nature had established an equilibrium. And, you know, and I'm sure that the First Nations into people, those tribes, they had a role to play in that. But it was a lot healthier equilibrium back then. And so now the bison are gone. And then we have like the big cattle drives coming up from Texas. And, um, you know, and that was kind of the same thing. High intensity, low time duration. But then there was no period of rest. Like the bison would come through um, accounts from the U.S. U.S. Cavalry would say that their horses almost died because they didn't see a blade of grass for three days you know, if they fell in behind some buffalo. But yeah. the, those, I mean, six million animals in a herd and like,
1: mm-hmm.
3: you may as well plow it with a tractor except all the, the urine and the bacteria from their stomachs and the biology all got mixed in. So that, that all stopped and now you have the cattle drives with no rest. And then you have like little villages and towns starting to pop up and everybody's got 15, 20 cows and they just let them, you know, they just kind of live on the edge of town. So it's just this continued hammering, hammering, hammering of the, uh, the the environment. And then in 1934, the government recognized that there was there was some issues going on out here in the West. So they they cut all the West up into like little pieces of the pie and they said, OK, Robbie, here's your piece. This is how many cows you can have. And then at that point in time, um, we completely shift from a low intensity, high time duration to a high, a low, low intensity, high time duration. So yeah. it's just, And so we've been operating with a grazing management strategy handed down by our United States, um, you know, the people that have been, the agencies that have been deemed with Regenerating and protecting this resource, which is our public lands, we've been doing it the exact opposite of what nature did before we showed up. So that, to me, right there says, "Hey, maybe we should try." And so that's what we're trying. We're doing now is, you know, we're we're going out this next spring. And we're going to have 1500 1, animals, which is twice as many as we had last year. Um, so there'll be a total of three three thousand animals once these cows have calves and we're just going to live with them and we're going to graze them in this, in this same kind of strategy. and Hmm. We've got our scientists and we're just going to start collecting data and, you know, see, we're, we're, we know we're, we know we're doing something, um, whether, whether it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, time will tell, but it feels right.
2: You know that you're talking about sort of living in harmony with the land, you know, making sure that you leave it, Better than and when you, your cows got on it or when you guys got on it, what's your philosophy when it comes to predators?
3: I mean, I think they definitely have a place. You know, they definitely have a place. A lot of times, um, predators.
2: Do you accept losses? as it just as a as a sort yeah. of bystance of this is what's going to happen? Um, it's there's just something about being. Sort of again, in line with nature, that there's just for me to be symbiotic. I'm going to accept some losses because that's just what I want. That's how the system is built.
3: Yeah, I mean we we call it the uh, we call it the the land tax, right? So that's like the tax of the land. You know, it's like nothing's a hundred percent. You're never going to have a hundred percent of the of a calf crop, or I mean, that's what happens. Animal animals die and um live and let live i i can't really you know i don't really relate to you know out here in wyoming like the wolves is a big issue right people are really up in arms about the wolves and the grizzly bears too and we don't have we don't have either in in the bighorn the bighorn mountains um so you know i i, I do think though that you know there's Would a your philosophy
2: where... be different if you had both
3: well, I mean, it's it, a lot of it comes down to the, you know to this financial system that this game we're all participating in, which is like make some money, right? And so, if a pack of wolves shows up and eats all eats fifty of your calves one night, I'll bet you 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 know your your sight you're sighting your gun in the next day. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's very it's very easy because it's uh the in agriculture is a real scarcity mindset, um, because there isn't a lot like there isn't a lot of extra money, you know, floating around and you can't you can only weather, you know, one or two really bad mistakes during your lifetime or you got to sell the place, you know. And so I think that the predator thing is uh it's it's definitely real, but I I also think I you know, there's a you've got you've got kill them all and let them all live on opposite ends of the spectrum, right? And I was like life experience tells me, well, the real truth is like, it's always somewhere in the middle, you know, Mm -hmm. people like to pick a side and say, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of all or nothing rather than, you know, recognizing it. There's, there's a little more nuance, nuance to life and, and situation, having some situational awareness, but yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. I know people get very, very heated, um, when it comes to predators and, I, I, but I do think that like this idea, people don't really honestly understand, you know, when they think of a grizzly bear or, or a wolf or one of these top predators, that, you know, they think of them more in terms of like what a, like what the book, how a book explains it. But if you've ever been out and like you've ever run across the grizzly bear when you're out in the woods and like how vulnerable one of those things can make you feel. Like, even if you've, I mean, this was a while like, this was a long time ago, but I was hunting sheep with a friend of mine and he, so we're, we're way up in the mountains and we track these, we find these rams up in this pocket and this, this pocket was probably half a mile deep, half a mile, and maybe a quarter mile wide. And the, the whole back third, two thirds of it was the solid cliff. We we're sitting there watching these rams, waiting for them to to come a little closer, and uh, the sun's starting to come up, and we hear rocks tumbling, and we'd heard that the bears are up there eating moths, moth larvae that time of year, and all of a sudden, like, wow, look, guys, a grizzly bear, you know, how neat is that, and we're looking, and then, you know, a little time goes by, and we're like, there's there's two more over there, and then there's another one. By the time it was all done, there was 11 grizzly bears.
2: Holy smokes.
3: You know, probably a quarter mile to three quarters of a mile just up eating these, eating the moth larvae, And it was great. We watched them for a long time. I don't even remember. I think the sheep just kind of disappeared. We couldn't find them. And uh, and then the wind changed and blew our scent up into the, all these bears. And it was like a bear bomb went off. There was bears running every direction. And I'll never, it's burned into my mind. Like, the bears didn't know where, they weren't charging us. They didn't know where we were. They were just coming at us. And I pulled my binos up, and there's this big old boar bear. And he's just, like, kind of, they don't, he wasn't running, like, straight on. He was kind of, like, it was like a truck that's got the axle kind of cocked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could just see, and I look at him, and he's, he's running straight at us. He's, like, 400 yards out. And I just see every muscle. And his fat roll. and I'm like, "Oh, no." Like if he like you just feel so small and vulnerable that, you know, they they've got a they've got a definite place too, but yeah, I don't know, man. So so often it's just we just cast these blanket statements like mm-hmm. shoot them all or don't yeah. shoot.
2: shoot shovel and shut up, you know, crowd. Yeah. Yes. Or oh, see, what do you think How synonymous is the lifestyle that you just painted for us as a regenerative agriculture or regenerative livestock guy
1: with a hunting mentality?
3: I mean, it's pretty much the same, you know, you're just, you're, it's the same, you know, you're just like, don't take more, don't take more than you need, you know, um, true, true, true stockmen, true hunters. Are all stewards of the land right mm. we're not out there to take um you're not out there to take more than your fair share and you're trying to to leave leave no trace and do better you know we're just we're trying to leave something for the future um versus the commodity norm which in which is like rape and pillage and like don't leave anything you know it's like we, we both look, regenerative ranching and farming and and sportsmen, like look at it all the same way. It's like, we need to leave something for the future. We're, try, we're all trying to improve, improve on what is current what is currently there.
2: yeah, i couldn't I couldn't have said it any better. You know, I think one of the things you said earlier resonated is like you don't want to, you don't want to, you, don't want to, you don't want to kill everything off. And I think that the mentality from the people who don't understand hunting or see hunting in, the, in a bad light or hunters in a bad light is that they have this idea that that's all we want to do yeah. is kill everything off, which makes absolutely no sense.
3: Yeah. It's just a lack of, there's, a, I mean, it's a lack of understanding, you know, there's a lack of under, of education there and it's just, it's so cut and dried, you know, and, and You know, we sit here and we try to explain, explain like what hunting is with words. But at the end of the day, like when you're, when you're out there and you're like, you have these, you have these just moments, you know, a lot of hunting is just like, you're kicking your butt. It's hard work. Like it sucks. Like it's not super fun all the time, but you do it because you have these moments that are just, they're, they're mad, right? Mm -hmm. you, you know, you hopefully you get a couple of those moments on every trip that are just magic and, and words don't do it. You can't explain it to somebody. All you can do is experience that. And people that have, you know, are dug in and they're on this anti side of it. You can't I don't know how you get through to them, you know, without experiencing that, you know, and I I feel like it's it's more of one of those things that like, you know, I'm all about. You know, o- having an open pers open perspective and and having an o- objective awareness, but a lot of you know I shouldn't say a lot, but some people just are not. And you know, I guess hey, that's okay too. But it doesn't mean I'm going to change what I'm doing. You know?
2: Yeah, it's funny you say that. It's it. There's a lot of people, and that's why we don't really you know the anti hunters are going to be anti hunters. You're never going to change their mind. And um, it's funny, I, we're about to release a series of videos this week on the bow hunting ban that's proposed or being put in place. I don't know where it's at right now in South Australia. And the argument that they're pushing forward is that they're banning bow hunting because it's inhumane. So they believe that bow hunting isn't as ethical, isn't as effective as rifle hunting. And if you dig into it, If you dig into the of the sort of definition of inhumane, you know, without compassion for or uh, without compassion for suffering, misery or suffering, is the definition of inhumane. And you start thinking about bow hunting. Are bows getting more or less technologically advanced? Are arrows becoming more or less technologically advanced? Are broadheads becoming more engineered to be more lethal? The answer to those three questions was yes,
1: which then begs the question: Why?
2: To make everything more lethal, to make things more effective, which means becoming more humane versus less humane. Right. And the idea of the idea of saying bow hunting is inhumane, yet we are okay poisoning our deer. And helicopter gunning the deer. And if you had seen any footage from either of those activities, it's probably the least inhumane activity you could possibly undertake. Yet you're saying you prefer that over
1: bow hunting just because you hate the idea of
2: hunting.
3: Yeah, it makes no sense.
2: Just the the ethics of it, right? It's just—it's like your your blind hate for an activity is actually um, blanketing the whole premise of why you are quote unquote an animal rights person.
3: Well, and I I feel like a lot of those individuals, or maybe maybe the mindset there is that they 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 associate like our feeling of pain. With what an animal feels like, they put human emotions into an, and it's like that just is not the case. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, we've got it's it's nine degrees out this morning, and the cows didn't have a sleeping bag. It's just they didn't have a heater. They didn't have a warm coffee. Like they're just out there, and I mean, the thing that I've seen, like. The crazy shit that I have seen animals go through, you know, uh, just like in, not even in the wildlife thing, but cows, like I've seen, I've seen a baby calf, like get stepped on and it's like, I've had to amputate its foot and it's just like with no, no painkiller, you know, it's just like, was in one of it was in the moment and the things flopping around. I'm like, well, this is better than that. So, and, and guess what? Like. 30 minutes later, it's like trying to suck its mom. Like, it's hungry. Like, if you cut, if I cut your foot off, Rob, I don't know, Rob, I think we're going to have to take it off. Be like, 30 minutes later, you're like, hey, we got them sandwiches in the back? Like, not it's just not the same. Or when you watch, um, you know, just inhumane, like, can you even use that terminology? Like, what makes us so much better than, you know, the wolf that eats eats the moose alive. Like they, li- they literally, I've seen I've seen coyotes take a deer down, and they like they eat it alive. Like it's not like choke it out and then it dies, and then we're like, all right, right, right. no, it 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 happens that way. So I think it's 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 obtuse to really even in think think that you know you give these animals, uh, that same emotional connotation that humans get. But I mean you you get it. You know, I've got a dog and we've got animals and we talk to him and you're just like, oh he's a good boy and you're like, it, I know there's a connection there, but it's 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 pretty it's pretty insane um how people can take it. But you can't, you know, we have to entertain the conversation too, right? You right. know, we have to we and and so I think that that's uh I think that's I think that's important as we all like, we all got to live here. We all got to get along. And so I'll listen to your side. You listen to my side. And maybe it's some, sometimes maybe just got to agree to disagree. You know? It's like, Hey, I respect your, your program. You respect mine. um, But just, you know, we can't, we can't push each other too far.
2: Yep. 100%. RC, I appreciate the conversation, man. I know you're sitting in your vehicle. It's digits, I'm single digits outside. I don't think that your vehicle is on, so you must be getting cold.
3: No, I'm just so tough. Imp- <laughs> no, I, I appreciate your, uh, your time, Rob. It was great, great conversation. And yeah, man, keep doing what you're doing. It's important. Oh,
2: thank you, man. I appreciate the support.
3: All right, bro.
2: Well, that's it for today